Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Great journalist is someone who can objectively bring a news story that not only catches the attention of the reader, but many times exposes some unknown truths that the masses don't know. This kind of investigative journalism not only creates great talking points, but can sometimes be the best way to learn, as many of these stories end up spreading like wildfire. I immediately think of the works of Tom Brokaw, Walter Cronkite, or going farther back in time, how about the works of Upton Sinclair, exposing the truths of the meatpacking industry? Well, on this episode of The Missing Chapter, we're talking about someone who was so curious about mental health and the treatment of patients that suffered from these kind of ailments that she actually became a patient herself. Welcome to The Missing Chapter, everyone. Grab your coffees and let's get started. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to another edition of the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Hornder here with Phil Shaw. We are sitting down to a nice brew this morning of cinnamon bun from Utica Roasting Company. And Phil, it's kind of the dark days of winter, yeah. as we like to refer to it as. It's in, especially in upstate New York. I know everybody is dealing with their own weather, but it's it's a little bit dreary here, a little bit gloomy. Um, this is great podcast weather, though. That's a good point. You know what I mean? Like, as, as I was driving in this morning, I was listening to a podcast. I thought to myself, like, it really does me well during this time to have that outside connection and, and and a story to listen to 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 get me through my days i enjoy it so hopefully you know you're maybe you're leaning on us a, a little bit here through the, the winter months when it's a little bit darker a little bit colder yeah cold like you know sweater weather podcast weather yeah. uh blanket weather it's a coffee great com- weather it's a great combination sure. all those things you just mentioned yeah um so here's the next question it's uh we're almost heading into january we still have our christmas tree up the real one, I think, is probably on its way out, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. fake one is still up. My wife loves having a Christmas tree up. Is yours still up? Ours is still up. We usually take ours down a week or so after New Year's. So like you said, the, the real one's been up a long time. We put yeah. it up right after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, but we also have some seasonal trees. You know, my wife yeah. likes to do the tree for Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, winter, and it's part Valentine's of the, it's, Day. It's a way to get through some of the seasonal depression, right, if you will. Right, you know? and that's the thing I was going to say, Phil, is like, you know, you almost have like a seasonal depression that sets in because the holidays are behind us. Yeah. You know, it's darker out, it's colder out. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier in our household because Andrew's birthday comes along in mid-January, so we have nice. that to focus on and enjoy. But with regards to New Year's resolutions, Anything that you are looking forward to doing in 2023 as we get ready to turn the calendar here? I would say most people probably go to the, you know, health and fitness side of things, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I would totally, I would totally say is, is part of my New Year's resolution. But I think those are short lived, typically. Um, I think for, for this coming year, I, it, it's going to be financial, almost like mm-hmm. a financial resolution. Put yeah. more money in the savings if you can. Stop spending money on, on, on uh, coffee. 
that right. you may or may not need. I don't know if although we, can do I, that. we do need yeah. it. So yeah, you do need that. All right. So maybe that's a that's an area where I'm some different ventures. Maybe yeah. Okay, that's right, good. Other areas. Yeah. If you talk, yeah, more like you know desserts that kind of. Thing. We don't need those, but we do need our coffee. Okay. That sounds good. How about you? Um, I, I think I think those are great. Um, you know, I, I I'm always looking forward to. I'd love to get back in the routine of doing a little bit of writing. Oh yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's time sensitive, Phil, as you know. It's like you know we're busy here, and it's a good busy. Yes. But finding time to do some other things, um, you have to get creative, creative it's, in where that time comes from. I don't know if we've mentioned this on air yet, mm -hmm. but for those of you that, that don't know this, uh, Phil is a published author of six uh, children's books. Yes. Starring Maximilian P. Mouse. Yeah, they came out in 2013. Yeah. So it's, it's been out there almost, well, 10 years. This will be 10 the 10-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah. So. and we did a, a, a nice... Uh, autograph session for yeah. for you at, at Barnes and Noble in New Hartford. That was fun. That was fun. Was great. Kind of um, a surreal moment. One of those career yeah. moments where you're like, wow, this is actually happening. That's this great. is kind of cool. That was one of my goals and it came to fruition. And yeah, like I said, if I could get back to doing writing, um, I have the ideas. It's just a matter of sitting down and, and taking the time to do taking it. the time to do it. But with regards to time, I mean, people who are very passionate about their work go to great lengths in order to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a segue into today's story, Phil. It's a very impressive segue. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate it. So, and this is one of those things where, as historians, you always you always like dive into some of the the more fascinating elements. This is one of those where, as an investigative journalist, like I, I mentioned in the intro, it's one thing to expose uh, maybe a weakness of of a certain area of history or uh, an unknown story, that kind of thing. But to actually become part of that statistic. Mm -hmm. Is is incredibly impressive. This is really what caught my eye. So, first of all, happy new year, everybody. But secondly, Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly is the focus of today's podcast. Um, usually, in in some of these episodes, I would I would start off by kind of maybe uh, I don't know giving some background information and guessing who this person is. I've never heard of Nellie Bly. Um, Neither have I. Okay. No. So no. This entire story, I know the premise behind yeah. it. Yeah. But it was completely foreign to me. So I'm, I'm going to jump right in here and, and just give you her name. Nellie Bly is, is a fascinating woman. Uh, a lot of this comes from womenshistory.org, if you're willing to check it out. Uh, but she was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran on May 5th, 1864 in Pennsylvania. Her father, Michael, owned a pretty lucrative mill uh, and served as an associate justice of Armstrong County at the time. But then he suddenly died uh, when she was six and he didn't leave a will. So there was a lot of affordability issues. So she couldn't afford the land or the house, um, and they, they had to move. All right, so her mother eventually remarried, but unfortunately divorced uh, in 1878, okay? So she is only about 14 years old at this time, and there was some abuse uh, that has been recorded. So okay. unfortunately, she, she's had a very rough upbringing in her early years. And that might be one of the reasons she gets involved in the work that she does down the line, right? And I, I believe yeah. that's part of it. Yeah, it would make sense. Yeah. So at 15 years old, uh, Nellie Bly enrolled at the State Normal School in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Now, I got to back up, too, because I keep mentioning Nellie Bly, but she doesn't really become Nellie Bly until later on. So, you know, obviously her original uh, birth name was Elizabeth. So okay. Elizabeth enrolled at the State Normal School in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was there that she added an E to her last name, becoming Elizabeth Jane Cochrane instead okay. of Cochrane. Okay. So due to the family's financial struggles, she said, Hey, I'm done with school uh, after one term. And she soon moved in with her uh, mother to Pittsburgh where her two older brothers had settled down. All right. So now they're in Pittsburgh. 
So she looked for work to help support her family. She really didn't really find many opportunities. Um, and she actually found even less than her less educated brothers, which kind of is typical for the time period, mm-hmm. but it's still unfortunate. So there was a, an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch that she wanted to respond to. And it criticized the presence of women in the workforce. So she, of course, penned an open letter, a response to the editor that called for more opportunities for women, especially those responsible for the financial well-being of her family. So you are spot on to say that there was, there was a lot of personal motivation in her in her outreach. So the newspaper editor by the name of George Madden saw a lot of potential in her piece and said, wow, this is actually really well wit- written and invited her to work for the dispatch as a reporter. Pretty, pretty nice guy, you right. know, for the time period. Um, obviously, women don't have even the right to vote yet for a, quite some time. And then she used, that's when she used the name, the pen name, Nellie Bly, N-E-L-L-I-E, Bly, which she took from a well-known song at the time, Nellie Bly. That Nellie was spelled N-E-L-L-Y. Okay, so she... And I have to say, Phil, that's my first, like, I anticipated you saying that the person who published the um, letter did not respond to it well. Yeah. Did yeah. not take the criticism well. Yeah. It was As opposed to, hey, come work for the newspaper. We see some potential in you. Absolutely. So that's like the, the first surprise for me right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, so she eventually became pretty popular. She's mm. a very good writer. You can you can hear her passion through her, her work. Um, and she was limited, though. She was limited to writing pieces that only addressed women um specifically and she soon quit mm-hmm. so as as much of an opportunity as that was she still was pretty dissatisfied with some of the limitations that were put on her okay okay so even though there was more opportunity there were still a lot of limitations to what she could or couldn't write so she want really wanted to write pieces that addressed both both men and women uh, but she began, she began looking for a newspaper that would allow her to write on more serious topics not okay. just on women alone so she ended up moving to new york city in 1886. So she's in her in her early 20s. She found it extremely difficult to find work as a female reporter. And of course, this is a very male dominated field. A few years go by, she storms into the office of the New York World, which is one of the leading newspapers in the country at the time. She wants to write a story on the immigrant experience in the US. The editor at the time was Joseph Pulitzer. I don't think any relation, but I, I, I double checked. I don't think there's any relation there, but it, it's possible. But he declined the story. He said he challenged Bly to investigate one of New York's most notorious mental asylums, Blackwell's Island. So rather than focusing on the immigration portion, let's Mm -hmm. focus on the mental health portion. She not only accepted the challenge, she decided to, you know, pretty much pretend that she was a mental patient herself to gain admission and expose firsthand how patients were treated. So she is now going a step further than just the investigative piece, she is becoming a patient. So she's going to do her own field work. Yes. And in 1886, I can't begin to imagine what mental health hospitals and facilities are like. And I, I, I don't even know, I don't mean to interrupt, but I don't even know, was the terminology mental health? It right. was, you know, I'm you sure were probably it just, it was, no. ins- you're insane. You know right. what I mean? Right. I, you know, in my mind, I immediately go to one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. And that was well beyond 1886. But even then, I mean, this is certainly not a place I would want to work much less, um, you know, be embedded in. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's pretty, that's pretty courageous of her. So pretty extreme and very extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And and there was something as I was reading about this and she was, she was a fantastic writer. And I think to give her credit rather than trying to, 
you know, put my own spin on it. I'm going to read directly from what, what she has said. So mm -hmm. I'm going to, so she actually writes a six part series called 10 days in a madhouse. And I'm going to, it's just taken directly from that. So she says on the 22nd of September, I was asked by the world, that magazine I was mentioning, if I could have myself committed to one of the asylums for the insane in New York with a view to writing a plain and unvarnished narrative of the treatment of the patients therein and the methods of ma management. Did I think I had the courage to go through such an ordeal as the mission would demand? Could I assume the characteristics of insanity to such a degree that I could pass the doctors live for a week among the insane without the authorities there finding out that I was only, quote, a child among them taking notes? I said I, I believed I could. I had some faith in my own ability as an actress and thought I could assume insanity long enough to accomplish any mission entrusted to me. Could I pass a week in the insane ward at Blackwell's Island? I said I could and I would. Here's the chilling part. And I did. That's the part that I, I was like, okay, you got me. So I'm curious and, and I, I, maybe you're going to get into this, Phil, uh, the logistics of this in terms of who knew that she was there and it, who wasn't privy to this. Because obviously, if you want to be able to get the information and get it unbiased as realistically as possible, not every administrator at this facility can know who she is. Right. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, what if something goes wrong, who does she have to kind of pull the ripcord, you know, and get help from? Well, or maybe she doesn't. That's the scary part, too. From what I could find, she was on her own. On her own. So if she was caught, it was on her okay. own admission. If she was in trouble, mm -hmm. you, you're assuming the role of the patient. So whatever the patient goes through, you're going to have to experience. Did the people at the newspaper realize she was doing this for the story? I don't think anyone knew okay. other than the person, the editor himself. Interesting. So, wow. You cannot, you can almost feel the angst. Now it's, it's a pretty cool read because you're, you're thinking to yourself, my God, this is 19th century stuff here. Yeah. And it's, and the way she's wording it and, and the visualizing uh, uh, her in these situations, you can almost feel her angst coming through the pages. So she, of course, assumed the character of an insane woman. And she started this six-part series by sharing her dinner experience. So once again, this is going back to that six-part series. She says, but my dinner, well, I followed uh, Miss Stannard, which was one of the helpers there, down the uncarpeted stairs into the basement where a large number of women were eating. She found room for me at a table with three other women. The short-haired um, the short-haired woman who had opened the door now put in an appearance as waiter, placing her arms uh, down and staring me out staring at me, excuse me, out of countenance. She said, boiled mutton, boiled beef, beans, potatoes, coffee or tea. Now mutton I had to find out. I don't know what mutton was. Uh, it's the flesh of a sheep. Mm. Okay. She responded, beef, potatoes, coffee and bread. It was not very long before she returned with what I had ordered on a large, badly battered tray, which she banged down before me. I began my simple meal. It was not very enticing. So while making a, a feint of eating, I watched the others. I've often moralized on the repulsive form charity always assumes. What a sentence, wow. right? Yeah, that's poetic. Often moralized on the repulsive form charity always assumes. Here was a home for deserving women, and yet what a mockery the name was. The floor was bare. And the little wooden tables were sublimely ignorant of such modern beautifiers as varnish, polish, and table covers. It is useless to talk about the cheapness of linen and its effects on civilization. Yet these honest workers, the most deserving of women, are asked to call this spot of bareness home. 
When the meal was finished, each woman went to the desk in the corner where Mrs. Stunnard uh, sat and paid her bill. I was given uh, a much used and abused red check by the original piece of humanity in shape of my waitress. My bill was about 30 cents. After dinner, I went upstairs and resumed my former place in the back parlor. I was quite cold and uncomfortable and had fully made up my mind that I could not endure this sort of business long. So the sooner I assumed my insane points, the sooner I would be released from enforced idleness. Ah, that was indeed the longest day I'd ever lived. I listlessly watched the women in the front parlor where all sat except myself. One did nothing but read and scratch her head and occasionally call out mildly, Georgie. Now, I got to stop right there. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that bring you back to Seinfeld? Georgie. It does. Right? And it also... Not to make it light also, of the situation. No, I'm sorry. Me, makes me think of the, the Stephen King book, uh, It. Yeah. Georgie, yeah. I, you know, Phil, to bring light to this to this woman, really, it's it's in my mind now, it's two things. Number one, it's the extent she's willing to go to to do her research and bring light to something that at this time in history was crucial, how we were treating people who needed help yeah. with mental illness. But the other thing is her writing is phenomenal. It's exceptional. Like if, if yeah. nothing else, you should study and, and learn from and be aware of this woman because of the way she's able to to put pen to paper. That's amazing. Her articulation. Her articulation, yeah. the talking of like what linens do because everything now is bare. And yeah. I'll tell you, I, I, I found myself kind of falling, like getting lulled into listening to those those excerpts. That Absolutely. was yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to get sidetracked there, Phil. But as soon as I saw Georgia, I immediately went Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so she did nothing but uh, get distracted and scratch her head um, because... While this woman is randomly calling out Georgie, she eventually fi figured out that Georgie was her over frisky boy who had more noise in him than any child I had ever seen before, she said. He did everything that was rude and unmannerly, I thought, and the mother never said a word unless she heard someone else yell at him. So very awkward situation. And she says, another woman always kept going to sleep and waking herself up with her own snoring. I really felt wickedly thankful it was only herself she awakened. The majority of the women sat there doing nothing, but there were a few who made lace and knitted, or excuse me, who made, yes, made lace and knitted unceasingly. The enormous doorbell seemed to be going off all the time, and so did the short-haired girl. The latter was, besides, one of the girls uh, who sang all the time, all the songs and hymns that have been composed for the last 50 years. Wow. So she does paint a very vivid picture of all the things that, I mean, it's got to be like sensory overload in there. The ringing of the bell brought more people who wanted shelter for the night, except one woman who was from the uh, country on a day's shopping expedition. There were working women, some of them with children, um, which as I'm as I'm visualizing all this, there's got to be just so much happening. She's yeah. trying to figure everything out, all the while assuming a false identity. Right. Maintaining the the charade yes. and acting while also trying to take in everything that's going on around her. So you have a woman yelling at her son. The son seems pretty belligerent. Um, you have one woman who is just <clears throat> inexplicably waking up and mm -hmm. from snoring. You have people coming in and out, doorbells ringing. It's insane. And you did mention the fact that she's trying to maintain this identity. Right. I wondered this, and it's funny. As I was reading this, I'm like, I wonder if there was any moments where she forgot her identity, and there were. Mm. In her story, she says, one said her name was Mrs. King and that she was a Southern woman. 
Then she said that I had a Southern accent. She asked me bluntly if I did not really come from the South. I said, yes. The other woman got to talking about Boston boats and asked me if I knew what time they had left. For a moment, I forgot my role of assumed identity and insanity and told her the correct hour of departure. Wow. So she's at the point where she, she is kind of like coming in and out of that assumed uh, identity and insanity. Now, as I was reading this, I'm like, okay, I wonder at what point is she going to get into the Upton Sinclair moments uh, talking about conditions? And this is the point. So she says, a sheet and oilcloth were under me uh, and a sheet and black wool blanket above. I never felt anything so annoying as that wool blanket as I tried to keep it around my shoulders to stop the chills from getting underneath. When I pulled it up, I left my feet bare. And when I pulled it down, my shoulders were exposed. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was absolutely nothing in the room but the bed and myself. As the door had been locked, I'd imagined I should be left alone for the night. But I heard the sound of heavy tread of two women down the hall. They stopped at every door, unlocked it, and in a few moments I could hear them relock it. This they did without the least attempt at quietness down the whole length of the opposite side of the hall and up to my room. Here they paused. The key was inserted in the lock and turned. I watched those about to enter. In they came, dressed in brown and white striped dresses, fastened by brass buttons, large white aprons, a heavy green cord about the waist from which dangled a bunch of large keys and small white caps on their heads. Being dressed as were the attendants of the day, I knew they were nurses. The first one carried a lantern and she flashed its light into my face while she said to her assistant, this is Nellie Brown. Looking at her, I asked, who are you? The night nurse, my dear, she replied, and wishing that I would sleep well, she went out and locked the door after her. Several times during the night, they came into my room. And even if I had been able to sleep, the unlocking of the heavy door, their loud talking and heavy tread would have awakened me. I imagine this, if anyone has ever experienced a loved one who has been in the hospital. Right. The nurses come in like every two seconds and they say, well, you, you got you to rest. Well, listen, it, yeah, uh, I would be able to rest if you'd stop coming in and checking my you know, vitals right, every right. two minutes. You know what I'm saying? But now she's basically saying, hey, listen, I can't sleep. And she goes on to say, I lay in bed picturing to myself the horrors in case a fire should break out in the asylum. Every door is locked separately and the windows are heavily barred so that the escape is impossible. In the one building alone, there are, I think, <clears throat> Dr. Ingram told me, some 300 women. They are locked one to 10 to a room. It is impossible to get out unless these doors are unlocked. A fire is not improbable, but one of the most likely occurrences. Should the building burn, the jailers or nurses would never think of releasing their crazy patients. I think this I can prove to you later when I come to tell you of the cruel treatment of the poor things entrusted to their care. As I say, in case of a fire, not a dozen women could escape. All would be left to roast to death. Even if the nurses were kind, which they are not, it would require more presence of mind than women of their class possesses to risk the flames in their own lives while they unlock the hundreds of doors for their insane prisoners. And this is the quote that gives me, gives me chills. And I apologize if my reading was a little choppy. I'm kind of trying to translate the old English into uh, things we understand. But it says here, unless there is a change, there will someday be a tale of horror never equaled. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, and we're back from the break. Uh, this is Phil Horner here with Phil Schaff. You're listening to the Missing Chapter podcast. Phil, I think up until this point, your story and her story, really, it's kind of validated what I assumed and what I pictured these hospitals, institutions would be like at this point in history. Very sterile, yep. very much like an institution, almost a prison. Right. There's nothing comforting about it. You know, it's cold. It's uncomfortable. Um, is there any physical abuse? I mean, what you're describing is abusive. The yes. waking up every night, the not allowing them to sleep, the the food they're being served. Is there anything that goes beyond that? All right. So because I feel like she's referencing it, yeah. but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, she goes into a little more detail. Um, don't forget, this is a six part series, and once again, if you want to read this for yourself, it's it's pretty amazing read. Ten days in a madhouse. It's called. And she does get into some specifics. Okay. Um, so I don't want to read it for any, or I don't want to spoil it for anyone who mm-hmm. wants to read it. But um, yeah, there there was there was some physicality involved. I don't think as extreme as we might think. Okay. But um, I think you, you're right. I think there's certainly just this this natural inclination for people inside that that really you're not cared for. You're not right. considered essentially a person. You're just this crazy nut who's in the sane asylum. And really, there's no worth to your life. So that way, you know, if there's a if there's a fire that breaks out, there's no reason to risk this, and, and we're going to keep the doors locked. Yeah, I think it, it gives you insight as to at this point, you know, in society, uh, you're a burden. You're you have to be taken care of, but beyond that, um, that's it. You're 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 living. Yeah. But you're not being nurtured. You're not being really right. cared for. You're able to maintain your life and so, pass time. And, and the way I the way I viewed it, you're right. It's a good way to put it. Is these people are burdens to the well, mm-hmm. um, and they're not victims. You know, a lot right. of a, a lot of what we feel as mental health now is the person who's suffering from a mental illness is in fact a victim of their own mind. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, it is certainly not. It's their fault and their burden. Uh, that's why there's you know no reason to go in and save them if there's ever a, a fire or any sort of an emergency. Okay, which. I think was very difficult for her because as she goes through um, towards the end of the of the the writing, it, it she does express some of the I don't know almost regret because she herself was kind of falling into that trap before she experienced this, mm-hmm. where she may or may not have agreed with some of the things that went on obviously, but she she kind of was in that camp of like well this is what society feels is is you know how you should deal with mental patients. And um, it's interesting because. I mean, she knows at the end of the day, when this research and this test is done, she can leave. Yeah, she's able point. to go home to her own bed, yeah. to her own house, and that there's an end to what she is experiencing. Whereas, for these other individuals, these other you know residents, that's not going to be the case. And, and I, I mean, there must be different levels of fluidity here in terms of like what, how, how, um, what's the word I'm looking for knowledgeable they are of their conditions. That's true. You know, I'm going to go back for a second, too, because the more we talk about it, the more I, I, I want to respond uh, a little bit more eloquently when with the physicality piece, hmm. because 
some of the things she described it, immediately upon walking in the sterile environment, there's no tablecloths. There's, right. you know, everything is just an annoyance and it's not seen as a comfort. You know, you're like, you're, you're a patient, mm -hmm. so you should be comforted for her. It was not that at all. So would there need to be a physical aspect to be considered abuse? Because it's already the conditions itself are it's so abusive. conducive to abuse um, that it's really more of a, a of an animal pen hmm. than it is a hospital for, for people who need help. Right, right. So I'm just thinking to myself, for her initial reactions to everything from the way people are responding to, hey, just show me where my, my room is, mm -hmm. um, all the way down, of course, to the linens. Everything was geared like, I don't know if I can do this. Right. She was right. in there minutes and already said, I don't know if I can do this. You know, what's interesting is you you think of people who go into the profession of a nurse. There's a certain bedside manner that you yeah. associate. Nurses are caring. They, you know, it's in their nature to to comfort you and to take care of you. And that's not the case right. at all right. with what she's experiencing. And, and, and this is something pretty profound as far as a historian standpoint. This is her courageousness, her, her boldness to do something like this. This really cemented her legacy as one of the most notable journalists in history. Uh, she not only, of course, raised awareness for mental health treatment, and it, it actually led to improvements in institutional conditions. And it ushered, ushered in an age, personally speaking, I think, for investigative journalism. Right. I know we've mentioned Upton Sinclair a couple of times, but... I think she is 100% the female version of that. No, I think that's a, I, I think that's a more than appropriate parallel for and sure. She, it's kind of tough to, to imagine this too, because she had a rough upbringing, you mm -hmm. know, her father passing. And then of course, abuse with her, uh, her stepfather, uh, which they ended up divorcing, which that's another mm -hmm. trauma. And then she goes to, into a, an insane asylum. And then on top of that, she chose that. So she's already gone through, you would think someone who has gone through something like that, you'd want You'd want comfort. You'd want to make a better life for yourself. And she chose to serve, mm -hmm. which I think is very, it's a very profound statement about yeah, her character. Very admirable. At age 30, though, she marries a millionaire. Okay. It's a good, good turn of events there yeah. for you. His name is Robert Seaman, and he retired, uh, she retired from journalism. But at, in 1903, her husband passes away. She's left in control of the huge ironclad manufacturing company that he was in charge of. Uh, American Steel Barrel Company was another business she was in charge of was also. So in business, she was very curious. She was independent. And that kind of spirit allowed her to flourish. Mm -hmm. She went on to patent several inventions uh, related to oil manufacturing, many of which are still used today, by the way. Uh, she also prioritized the welfare of the employees, which would make sense knowing her background, uh, providing health care benefits, recreational facilities. But unfortunately, she really couldn't manage all the finances well, fell victim to fraud by employees, and the firm ultimately declared bankruptcy. So I think going back to her early years where once her father passed and they just couldn't manage the funds, history repeated itself and she, she fell victim to that as well. In later years, Bly uh, returned to journalism, covering World War One from Europe and continuing to shed light on major issues that impacted women specifically. But I think this is interesting. The most famous of Elizabeth's stunts, though, was not actually her work in the insane asylum. It was her successful 72-day trip around the world wow. in 1889. She had two goals. First, she wanted to beat the record set in the popular uh, fictional world tour from Jules Verne's around the world in 80 days, of course. Second, she wanted to prove that women were capable of traveling just as well as, if not better, 
and men. She traveled light. She took only uh, the dress she wore, a cape, a small traveler's bag. She challenged the stereotypical assumption that women could not travel without many suitcases or outfit changes and vanity items. And her world tour pretty much made her a celebrity for the time period. Um, but after her return, she toured the country as a lecturer and she, she, she made some speeches and so forth. But her image was used on everything from playing cards to board games. So it was kind of a nice, a nice turn of events. It wasn't actually her investigative journalism that made her famous. It was this, it was her spirit that really encouraged uh, her fame and, and to spread empowering women, which I think is pretty cool. No, I, I think in the true nature of the Missing Chapter podcast, here you have someone who was a pioneer in so many different fields, so many different fields. And myself, I never heard of the name before. Right. Yeah. Uh, she recounted her adventures in her final book, Around the World, in 72 days. Love it. Uh, Bly held the record for only a few months, though, because it was broken by businessman George Francis Train, who completed the journey in 67 days. But once again, she's been immortalized by, by many things, including the McLaughlin brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, made uh, a game about her life called Around the World with Nellie Bly in 1890. I mean, how cool is that to have a, a, a board game uh, made after your own life? She's currently um, a poster child in the New York Histori Historical Society, and she was working as a writer when she died from pneumonia on January 27th, 1922. But there is a tribute after her death. The acclaimed newspaper editor Arthur Brisbane remembered Bly as, quote, the best reporter in America. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander, and I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>